Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Joining us on the fan is Rick Carpiniello, a longtime Rangers beat reporter and author of the new book, The Franchise, New York Rangers, A Curated History of the Blue Shirts. Rick, what was the goal that you set out to achieve when you sat down and started to plan this book out? I guess it was just, I wanted to just empty the tank of all the old anecdotes and stories I'd built up over 43 years. You know, when I was in the last couple of years before I retired, when I was in the press box, uh, something would happen and it would jog my memory and I'd tell a story in the press box and all the younger writers would get a good kick out of it. They'd like, you know, it'd be a Ty Domi story or some store, Herb Brooks or something. And, and it seemed that they got a kick out of it. So I said, you know, I, I want to tell some of these stories. And uh, now that I'm retiring, I this is the only way to do it, really. And and honestly, Danielle, I probably could have written two books, twice as much uh, or two books with all the stories that I had stored away and amazingly remembered. Uh, oh. I, I did it all from memory. <laughs> <laughs> well, to me. Congratulations on retirement, by the way. Thank you. How well, important was it for you to have Brian Leach write the forward to it? Well, it was really important to me on a number of levels. And and one being since I retired and since he retired, we've really developed a really nice relationship. Uh, he did the foreword for my Messier book uh, years ago. He was so happy to do this one. He, he was really excited about it, which kind of made me excited. Uh, you know, greatest player in Rangers history who wants to do something like this. Uh, that was so cool to me. And even Mike Richter, I called him and asked him if he wanted to uh, do a little blurb for the book jacket. He wanted to read the book first. And so he was really into it. Like I had to send him PDFs of the book before it was long before it was published. And uh, he read the whole thing. And so I think when you, know, you get buy-ins from guys like that, uh, it gets you pretty pumped up. Leach was a special player, a special person who played on on a special team uh, in 1994 and, and accomplished the most unbelievable thing one player could accomplish uh, in winning that Conn Smythe Award as the first American to do so, but also, and then uh, obviously got his number retired, went to the Hall of Fame. Uh, and to, to think that, you know, I've got a friend in this guy is really cool to me. Yeah, that's, that is pretty cool. Uh, another word you used a lot throughout this book, the first of many times on page 62, was the word chaos. Why, <laughs> why is that an appropriate word to describe this Rangers franchise as you know know or knew it? Yeah, because, I mean, and I, and I started to sense that theme too as I was writing it, of course, because chaos reigned in, in so many of those years. And, and I, I don't go back beyond 78 so it starts in 78 when i started covering the team and 
And there, there was chaos already, even though they went to the Stanley Cup final that year. And they had Fred Shero, who was his own kind of personality. And then they had the Herb Brooks era. And and then the real chaos started when Phil Esposito became the general manager and made, what, 43 trades in a really short period of time. Uh, Mike Keenan brought the un, unmatched chaos in the in the greatest year in franchise history. You know, and so it just went on and on. And then, you know, and then there was chaos throughout the 90s when they tried to win again and when they brought in Wayne Gretzky and failed to win. And and then, at, you know, toward the end of my career there, when when they cleaned house at the end of a rebuild, chaos has reigned supreme in the Rangers organization. But they've had some close calls, but, you know, it's mostly been that chaos and the number, the turnover in coaches and general managers that really for a long time, uh, made it impossible for them to to succeed. Author Rick Carpiniello joins us on WFAN. And I was proud that you gave our little station a shout out, the first quarter of the book, the franchise. Yeah. Um, how has the role of a sports talk radio evolved in your time on the Rangers beat? Yeah, it's, it was, you know, it was just starting. Or it actually hadn't started yet when I first got it. It hadn't started yet. Um, and, and of course, when I started too, we were also using typewriters, never mind social media. WFAN came around. It was uh, a, a lot of uh, baseball, football talk, as you would imagine. And hockey finally reached the stage in 93, 94. You know, when, when Mike and the Mad Dog started talking about hockey, that was like, wow, you know, this is really big. You know, and then you got, you know, Steve Summers was was a legend that he loved hockey. And to now, even now, you hear, you know, the, you guys are fans. You guys are sports fans at WFAN. And that's really cool. I, you know, I, I do wish hockey could could l- climb up the ladder a little more. But I, I do, you know, I do sense that most of the hosts do root for hockey teams, too. They, they don't ignore it, which yeah. is great. But, the, you know, the evolution of WFAN and all sports talk radio has it's been pretty dramatic over the years. You know, you chronicled the goalie Hedberg and he said it, this was a period where we were suddenly on the first page of The New York Times. When had hockey been on the first page of The New York Times? Never. Why does hockey tend to take a backseat here in New York? Well, I guess it's it's a it's a sport that isn't played by a lot of kids. Right. I mean, you know, even as big a fan as I was. When I was a kid, we didn't have a high school hockey team. So I, I played on the ponds, but I never played organized hockey. And I think that kids, all kids play some form of, ba- some form of baseball. Lots of kids play basketball and football. All you need is a ball and a field. You know, in hockey, you need a lot more stuff, a lot more equipment. Uh, you have to rent your ice time, uh, and it's expensive. It's a bit exclusionary in that regard, or it always was anyway. So I think that you know, hockey is not the not the sport that people gravitate to naturally. But I will say this, and I say this very confidently: hockey fans are the most passionate of any sports fans. They they're smaller in numbers, no doubt about it, but they're the most passionate, I believe. Longtime Rangers beat reporter Rick Carpiniello is with us on the fan. I I wanted to really kind of dive into this. In which ways did you have to kind of adapt your methods of coverage pre-internet, we'll say, and then Um, this 24 hours news cycle? Yeah, it's like I said, you know, when I started, it was typewriters and telefax machines. So that, you know, there were we didn't have cell phones. So forget about social media. (laughs) We didn't have cell phones. We didn't have computers. 
uh, in the in the 80s we started getting these, these really raw computers mine was and i think i describe it in the book my first one was called a teleram it was like a 40 pound piece of metal luggage in which you type into a screen that was about four inches by four inches and it was just a, a blue or black screen with white letters and you'd have to save your story every 15 seconds or you'd lose it and then you'd transmit it by plugging your telephone your you know your handset into the top of the computer into a coupler so we're talking about dark ages here, even though it wasn't that long ago. In terms of a reporter's job, your job then was to write your stories. And when I say stories, you know, most of us had to write an early story before the game that would run in the early papers, and then a, a running story, which would be basically a play-by-play -play of the game that you'd send right at the buzzer, and then you'd do your, your follow story or substitute story with quotes from the locker room, et cetera. And that was your day. You go home. <laughs> then, you know, by the time I retired, that was the my game story was the least important thing that I did all day. You know, you're there, you go to the morning skate and you're banging out, you know, social media nuggets of, of what happened in the pregame skate. Then you're doing lineups and stuff. Then I would do a video before the game and I would have to compete with, you know, the national anthem singer doing his pre rehearsal. During, you know, I have to wait for him or her to finish the rehearsal so I could do my video in the arena. Uh, and you're, you're doing social media all day and uh, blogging nonstop. Uh, and blogs, I don't, I guess, aren't as big now as they were in the 90s and, and two, uh, 2010s, I guess. 2010s was when it was really nuts with the blogging. Uh, and bl live blogging throughout the game, live tweeting throughout the game, you know, all this stuff. And then a video after the game. So and then a, and then a final blog post that would I would do a game review, which was quite complicated and quite lengthy until two o'clock in the morning or I finish it on the train home. So my game story was like an afterthought. <laughs> like I, then I, I, know, I call my editor just to make sure I put the score in because I was so busy doing everything else. The game of sports writing has changed immensely, as you can imagine. Rick Carpiniello is with us on the fan. Um, you know, you talked about Coach Brooks with the Rangers and how open and available he was to the media. And then to, I guess we could say fairly recently, that one hallway you talked about is now closed to the media. So yeah. how important is it? Is that like unstructured time with access to the players and or the yeah. coaching staff for you and the writers? It, it's really crucial. And, and you have to have a couple of things. You have to develop some relationships and some trust, which we were able to do quite easily because, first of all, not only did we have tremendous access back then, but we were fewer in numbers. There were maybe five or six beat writers who, right. who traveled with the teams, with the, the Rangers, and some teams far fewer than five or six, two or one. So you had that locker room time, especially on the road. And also at practices, practice numbers were way down in terms of media. As it got bigger, you still had your ability to make relationships work and private time, especially practice time. And now I think the practice time is really the only time that these guys and girls get to spend one-on-one -on -one with players. Because it's really to get a player one-on-one -on -one after a game is a real challenge with the number of cameras and the number of microphones and, and the number of electronic media that are now in that locker room every game. You know, it's like a playoff game every night with in terms of the coverage that the Rangers get at home. 
on the road, it's still a little bit different, but in the, on the road, the challenge is that often <laughs> the visiting team's locker room is usually not very big. And you mentioned that hallway. And that, and that hallway before the game, for those who don't know what we're talking about here, was where the guys worked on their sticks before the game. And a lot of them did it as a ritual or as a distraction or a way to unwind before a game. Some guys were really serious about working on their sticks, but some guys just did it as uh, kind of a calming something to do pregame. And we had access to that hallway. And that's when you would really have time to talk to the players about stuff other than hockey. And if you had questions for a story, they mostly happily answer your questions. But but it was a real unofficial press player relationship time. And uh, I thought that was critical. And when we lost that over the years, and now it's almost completely gone, I believe, around the league, I think that was a big blow to media slash player relationships. And to the detriment of the reader as well. I, yeah, I for sure. Uh, the author of the franchise, The New York Rangers, A Curated History of the Blue Shirts, Rick Carpinello, is with us on The Fan. Um, page 29, he said, hockey would never be the same once Gretzky arrived in the NHL, though some, this author included, wondered how much of the Gretzky pre-hype was real. What? I mean, I'd never seen him, right? I So I, I had heard about his junior days and how he scored, you know, whatever, 800 goals when he was nine years old. and <laughs> and And... This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You know, but... There's always hype. You know, there's always going to precede the player when he does great things. He was really good in the WHA for that one year too, but he's going to come to the league in the 70s when it was ruled by big goons. I mean, the Flyers and the Bruins had just won a bunch of cups by beating the hell out of each other or beating the hell out of everybody. How is this kid going to stand up? He's skinny. You know, he's little, he's skinny. He doesn't look real fast. Uh, he doesn't seem to have a great shot. And then the puck starts going in, not just for him, but for everybody around him. And you're like, holy mackerel, this kid's real. And then it really started going when the Oilers started to win, when he's putting up 200 points a season and he's having a 51-game point streak. He ended up doing things that you couldn't, even the most hype-happy person leading up to his arrival could not have imagined the things that he would do. I don't think it's even a question that he's one of the top five team sports athletes in the history of sports, never mind hockey. Author Rick Carpiniello is with us on The Fan. I would say, and I did read every single page of this book, my favorite part was when you were talking about 9-11, it was really moving. And yeah. like especially the part where you were writing about the players' reactions aboard that team plane to Detroit, which was, I guess, yeah. just a week later. Yeah. Was your mindset at the time more of like, I'm a journalist and I'm going to take notes on what I'm observing. Or was it one of those, I'm never going to forget this moment type of scenes. Yeah, it was the latter. You know, I was reeling from, <laughs> I was in the city that day with, because the training camp was supposed to open. Being in the city that day was surreal to be there, to, to see the bombers flying over New York city, really low. And, the, and, you know, the fighter jets and the, and the helicopters 
And to see skyscrapers being emptied, being evacuated uh, into the streets and people walking out of this, trying to get out of the city. And of course, the smoke and the smell and the sirens. And so to me, I was rocked to the core as much as you could be. And so I wasn't even thinking about the hockey game or the flight to Detroit. I was thinking, still thinking about, you know, what just happened. And then when we, when that plane banked into the sky and we looked out the window and saw the burning pile, man, that's something you just, never ever forget and the player's reaction is something you'll never ever forget and i, I don't i probably wasn't even taking notes <laughs> you know i was i'm sure that's all burned deep in my brain and always will be we're talking with rick carpaniello on the fan uh, on page 90 you said adam graves was your favorite player to cover uh a why is that and then who would be two and three well two would be number two <laughs> so let's go with brian <laughs> Adam Adam was my favorite in a different way. And Adam was the nicest person I've ever met. And I can't say that in a strong enough manner. Like he was nicer than my grandmother. He was nicer than, you know, he was too good to be true. And the story goes about how his family took in all these foster children, 40 of them maybe at a time in Toronto and, and treated every single one of them like a brother and sister. And Adam's personality came from his parents and his family. And uh, he truly is the kindest, most generous, uh, most polite, respectful human being I've ever met. He also happened to be a big, tough power forward, which is the kind of player I would love to have been if I could have played at any kind of level. In those regards, he was my favorite player to cover. He wasn't a great quote because he would never talk about himself. He would never say anything about a goal that he scored other than it was lucky. And so as terms of a journalist, no, Adam wasn't my favorite, you know, to, to interview, et cetera. But he was just my favorite person, my favorite player to know. Brian obviously is, is a friend on a different level. To pick a number three would be so hard between the, the Maloney boys and John Davidson and, and Mike Richter and so many others, even Mark Messier to, you know, and, and to have covered Wayne Gretzky, it, it's amazing just to have gotten to know him a little bit. There are so many others that would fit into number three that I don't even think I could pick one, but one and two are pretty quick. <laughs> um, you know, when they finally won the cup, to be honest, was there any cheering in that press box? I don't think there was. You know why? Because, well, first of all, there isn't. And I don't think really we're rooting. I think when it gets to game seven against Vancouver and game seven against New Jersey, you've got a great story on your hands no matter which way it goes, right? Having been through game seven with New Jersey, where the Devils tied the game with seven seconds left and forced not only overtime, but double overtime. I think in the Vancouver game, we're all just, we just want to hear a buzzer. We don't <laughs> want, you know, you, you don't want to have to have two different stories written. One being the complete disaster of extending this curse for 55th year. The other being, the greatest moment in franchise history, and you don't know which story you're going to send, <laughs> but you know you're sending one of those two. So I think there was a great relief when the buzzer sounded, more than any kind of euphoria or disappointment, as it may be. I thought it was so cool uh, how the players like invited you to their team party, but you described it as a, quote, a bit uncomfortable. And, you know, 
Rick, I stand back, I read between the lines of that, and I just see the level of trust that they had in you, and I kind of think it's the ultimate compliment. I can't believe you describe it as uncomfortable. It, it is the, it's the ultimate compliment. Um, it's not the first time I experienced something like that on a smaller level, uh, because Mark Messier was the most inclusive leader I've ever seen in sports. I think I told the story of we were in Burlington, Vermont for training camp, and I had gone out to dinner with my uncle and aunt who lived up there. On my way back to my car, I passed a, a bar slash restaurant where the Rangers were having a team dinner. And I passed the window and all of a sudden Mark came running to the door and, and waved me in and told me to come sit with them. I said, Mark, I just had dinner. No, thanks. You know, and he's no, no, come in and have a beer or have some dessert or something. You know? And that's the way they were. They were under Mark. They were just an all inclusive team. They thought everybody was, Anybody around them was even, they thought was part of the team, even though we didn't want to be considered part of the team. The writers didn't. But the Stanley Cup party was a little different because, A, I shouldn't be celebrating this thing. <laughs> and I really wasn't. I had just finished a really long, hard night. The uh, families were all in a separate room, and, and I didn't want to go into the family room. I didn't certainly didn't belong in there. But I did want to see what it was like, how the city basically was going to celebrate this thing that had never happened in my lifetime before. And, and now it hasn't happened in a whole other generation's lifetime and going on one in 84 years. So, and I wanted to be there, but I wasn't comfortable being going into the family room and I didn't go into the family room. It was a little uncomfortable in that regard. And then the fact that I couldn't get in in the first place because the bouncer wouldn't believe me. <laughs> he said, no press allowed. I said, okay, I understand. And as I was turning to walk back to my car, this limousine pulls up with Stanley Cup in the passenger seat and Mark and the Mark and his father in the back and Mark pulls me into the restaurant. So I still stayed outside the family room. I didn't want to be that uncomfortable, but it was pretty cool to to see it and to see the city around it celebrating. Long time Rangers beat reporter Rick Carpentiello is with us on the fan. If should you add an addendum to this Rangers book, the franchise curated history of the blue shirts. What would this year's chapter of Rangers hockey be called? Yeah, I think I'd have to still wait and see, right? I mean, right. I think, you know, most of the, the rebuild they've built toward this. Now, we're st I think they're contenders. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And this is no secret because every, pretty much everybody feels this way. For them to take the next step, some of the young players were going to have to climb the ladder a little bit. Uh, their trajectory was going to have to go upward. And to this point, Alexei Lafreniere has, and, and Keandre Miller has, Philip Hedel injuries and Capocacco injuries have prevented them from doing so. So I think it's still to be written because I do believe that they're contenders. If they get in, they could be dangerous to anybody. But I also think that if they're going to be serious cup-type contenders, a team that is favored to win a cup, those young players are still going to have to come in and raise their bar a little higher. It's still the unknown. I, I, think, I do think, though, that what they've done so far this season is pretty impressive. What would even a uh, like a diehard Rangers fan learn from your book, the franchise, New York Rangers, a curated history of the blue shirts? I guess, the, you know, what I, what I have heard from a lot of fans who've read the book already, which really makes me happy, is that they've laughed. 
that they've laughed a lot. That, that you know, I get tweets that say, "I'm LOLing at chapter six, You know, and I think that's so cool. Um, and I wanted it to be a fun book. I didn't want it to just run down forty three years of one cup or. I didn't want to build up that cup to be the be all end all, even though it was the highlight of my career and a highlight of team history, basically, which is going on a hundred years <laughs> pretty soon. But I wanted it to be entertaining and I and I wanted people to laugh at it. And certainly some of it's not funny, but the stories and the characters that came out of this team since 78, 79, there are too many to count. I didn't get them all in the book. But I think I, I think I got enough things in there that Ranger fans didn't know before or haven't heard before. Stories that they might have only heard part of or characters like Ty Domi, who's I could have written two chapters on Ty Domi. <laughs> uh, but, you know, he I, and I did write a lot about him because he was a funny guy and he was a character. He was a character the likes of which I hadn't seen and still haven't seen again. The tough guy stories. I like the I like the tough guys. You know, the tough guys were always the softies too. When you talk to them, the uh, Joey Coasters, and they were funny and they were they were characters. So I think the characters and the anecdotes that made you laugh were the things that I really hope I got across to to people who maybe think think they know the team really well and didn't know this or didn't know that. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I did laugh out loud in a few different parts. We could talk about that later, but uh, <laughs> uh, Rick, thanks so much for taking the time for us tonight. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Danielle. And thanks for doing this and uh, happy holidays to you. Pick up your copy of Rick Carpaniello's The Franchise, New York Rangers, A Curated History of the Blue Shirts, wherever books are sold.